Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Uh, my name is Pastor Ransom. Last week, we finished our series called Kings of Summer. We went through a, a, a general overview of First and Second Kings. Uh, in two weeks, we'll be starting our new series called Real Christians. It'll be a series uh, from uh, September 13th through uh, the beginning of Advent on the Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew 5-7. through So for this in-between, these in-between weeks, we'll be preaching on a couple different things. Today, I'll be preaching on Psalm 133. Psalm 133. For context, this psalm was written by David, King David. It's a psalm of ascent, and so this psalm traditionally would have been used by ancient Israelites as they traveled from wherever they lived uh, to Jerusalem for the feast or festival, whatever they were uh, going to join in, the festivities there. And so they were, uh, imagine with me, they've been living real life wherever they found themselves, and now as they return to be gathered together to worship God and celebrate what He had done for them, uh, they joyously sang this song. <laughs> Um, again, picked this passage a long time ago, but as we find ourselves in the life of our church about to gather in person again, uh, we can take uh, comfort in the fact that God cares for His people and He knows what they need to hear. So we're going to be studying uh, this passage, Psalm 133. I'm going to read it to us. It's only three verses long. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. So please follow along with me. Psalm 133, starting in verse 1. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray for our community, we pray for ourselves uh, as a church that we would remain safe as we gather back together for in-person worship. We pray that you would guard against any kind of uh, technical difficulties that those not joining us uh, would be able to worship with us through our live stream. Father, we are thankful that you have uh, blessed our congregation in the way that you have. Thank you that you have brought those who are here, here to dwell in unity together. I pray, Lord, that this sermon would convict our hearts and encourage us in these hard times. We love you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Psalm 133. So the, the main theme of Psalm 133 is dwelling in unity. And so in verse 1, we're going to take a look at there's a very, some, several very important words there. Uh, we're going to be looking at those to make sure we understand the, the meaning of, of verse 1. And then verses 2 and the beginning of verse 3 give us some very vivid illustrations to help us gain a deeper understanding, and then we're going to finish up the sermon by looking at the end of verse 3, which is, in a sense, the summed up uh, meaning of this passage. So, let's begin by looking at the very first word of verse 1 from the English Standard Version. The first word is, Behold! I don't know how loud that was in your television, uh, but I do hope that it got your attention, because that's what this word is supposed to do. When David wrote that Hebrew word that we translate, Behold, what he was saying to the reader is, Look, there's something very important, very exciting I need you to pay attention to. He wants to grab your attention. Here, look, there's something exciting I need to tell you. And then it's followed by two statements, both dealing with uh, brothers dwelling in unity. And so before we talk about what good and pleasant mean, I think it's important for us to understand exactly what dwelling in unity is. So let's take a look at this phrase, brothers dwell 
in unity. Let's start with brothers. Brothers, the word here behind the English word that we read means kin or blood relations. It also can mean countrymen. So Israelite men, back in this time, it's a patriarchal society, married Israelite men considered themselves kin or brothers. So they were all, of course, descendants of Abraham, but uh, they each have individual families. And as they joined that rite of passage, becoming a man, they, they considered themselves brothers. And so that's why we get this uh, kind of a male emphasis in this verse, uh, brothers dwelling in unity. But as we attempt to take the meaning of this passage and apply it to ourselves, we have to walk through the filter uh, known as Paul the Apostle. So uh, we have to understand uh, what this phrase means to us by looking at how Paul interprets this kind of patriarchal male view of the Old Testament. So I draw our attention to Galatians 3, 26-29. Listen to how Paul describes who is a son of Abraham. Who is a son of God. So he's talking to the church at Galatia and he says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. What else? There is no male and female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. If you are Christ, then what? Listen to what he says. This is fascinating. You are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Heirs according to the promise. For the first century church, this is a radical, radical teaching. What he's saying is, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, listen, when you are in Christ, it is as if you are a son. It is as if you are a son. The privileges that the eldest son had in a family in this day and age now belong to all of you. The full inheritance, the lion's share inheritance that traditionally belonged to just the eldest son now belong to all of you. You are counted in Christ as a son. For us in the 21st century, our response might be, well, duh. Uh, and so because of the culture we live in, we miss the incredible truth, the radical truth that's in this passage in Galatians. You see, for centuries, the female gender had been oppressed, <laughs> had been discounted. And now, in the teachings of Christianity, they are an equal recipient of the Gospel. They are equal children of God. Equal access to God the Father. Now, the Bible does outline different roles for men and women, but in all of those different roles, guess what? We are equal before the throne of God. Praise the Lord. And so as we read here, at brothers dwelling in unity, we must understand that this means brothers and sisters, those who are a part of the family of God, equal heirs, Abraham's offspring, each and every one of us. So that's what he means there, brothers, brothers and sisters, dwelling in unity. So let's look at this word dwelling. Dwelling is actually the same exact word we talked about last week from Jeremiah 29, where Jeremiah said to the Israelites who are in captivity, listen, you need to live there in Babylon. It means to, to um, live for an extended period of time. Commit to that place. So it's the same word there. And then in unity, I'm going to just quote from the, uh, the Dictionary of Biblical Languages. It means holy in unity with each other, i.e. Pertaining, be pertaining to being whole and in a state of oneness. So what is unity? What is unity? It's important for us to understand that this is more than just 
getting along. This is not like, hey, it's really great when you guys just get along. No, oneness, unity, it is actually a factual reality. So when we dwell in unity, what are we doing? We're living out our factual oneness. We're living out a reality that exists. We are one. And when we dwell in that, we live as if that is true. Before we move on to the descriptors of good and pleasant, we need to understand for ourselves, what is the basis for our unity? So for Israel, what was the basis of their unity? They were one race. They worshipped at the temple in Jerusalem. That, that was, or at the, I guess during the time of David, it was the tabernacle, right? That They lived in one location, the promised land. And so those things were what caused them, God's choosing them to be His people is what caused their oneness. It's, not, it's none of those things, well, some of those things for us, God's choosing us, but it's not our race or the location where we worship or the building in which we worship or the location where we live. No, none of those things cause our oneness in the church. Our unity, you see, is something that has been created by Jesus Christ. It's something that we can only be placed in by Jesus Christ. Our, our unity is centered only around Jesus. Jesus Christ. I, I just um, read Galatians 3, 26-29 and probably all of us, because I was asking us to, to uh, highlight a different part of that verse, I'm guessing we breezed right over this grand truth that supports this idea. Look at Galatians 3.28. He just finishes saying there's no male, no female. He says, what's the, the final phrase? You are all one, what? In Christ Jesus. Our unity is a reality. It's factual. It's not something we can change. And what is the basis of our reality, of this, of this oneness? It is Jesus Christ alone. And so, our unity is the fact that we are saved by grace through faith. That is what unifies us, church. We dwell in the unity. When we live in that reality that we are only together, not because of our hair color or our skin color or where we live, or our race, or any of those things. We are only together because we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Think about the freedom that gives us. Think about the freedom that is offered to us by that truth. Because our oneness is based on our salvation in Jesus Christ, guess what? We don't always have to agree. Because our oneness is based on the reality of what Jesus Christ has done for us already, we don't have to like the same things. We, don't, we are bonded beyond those things. Beyond affinities. Beyond our culture. Beyond our backgrounds. Paul follows this line of logic while helping the Roman church to solve an internal problem. They had this disagreement. Should we eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols or not? What should we do? Should we eat... Uh, only, or should we be vegetarians? Those kinds of things. And he says this in Romans 14, 15. Listen to the basis of his argument. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. So what he's saying to these people who say, you know what, it's my preference, it's my choice, I'm going to eat meat whether it hurts you or not. He's saying that's not in love. So what is, but listen to the next phrase, it's the basis of his argument. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. 
by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. What's the basis for treating one another with kindness and love? It's not about rights or privileges. It's not about conscience. It's not about uh, uh, whether we agree or not what is right or wrong. It's about the fact that we are unified by one thing and one thing alone. Jesus died for our sins. So eating meat or not eating meat is the sub-point. Their unity in Christ was supreme to the situation. It should be supreme to our situation as well. So when we disagree, church, because we will. We will disagree. We do all the time. What is this idea teaching us? It's teaching us that we ought to handle that disagreement as those who have been died for. As those who have been died for. We ought to handle that disagreement as those who cannot actually be divided. We, are, we have a unity in Jesus Christ and it's not based on anything else. We have to handle it with humility that comes from our salvation only being from Jesus Christ. That's a, that's a powerful application. And so what is dwelling in unity? What is it? Taking all these ideas together, it is brothers and sisters living in the deep reality, the deep truth of their oneness created and given by Jesus Christ. That's what it is. Brothers and sisters living in the deep reality, the deep truth of their oneness that is created and given by Jesus Christ alone. That is dwelling in unity. So let's, now that we know what it is, let's see how it's described. Behold, how good and pleasant, it says in verse 1. The word good has two senses. First of all, morally good and right, aligned. Uh, in my early college days, I worked construction as a side job, and one of the terms that is used in construction is the word flush. Now, it's not referring to the bathroom. It's referring to when two pieces of wood are next to one another, when they are aligned properly, it's as if there is no seam. They are flush. It's smooth between the two pieces of wood. This is the same idea. They are aligned. When it is good. It is in right alignment. It is, it is a morally good, right thing. The second sense is this idea that it's delightful, pleasing to the sight and senses, enjoyable. We can see both of these ideas in action in Genesis 1. All right, So this is a pretty famous verse for those of you who have been in the church. And what does it say about, in God, about God creating? And God saw everything that He made. So this is the last day of creation. Everything exists. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So what is it saying about creation when it says it was good? It's saying it was all in alignment. It was all for God's glory. It all was right. And it was beautiful. It was pleasing to see. It wasn't ho-hum. It wasn't boring. It was incredible. It was good. Right, aligned, and delightful. Pleasant, the second word that's used to describe here, means favorable, acceptable. Same thing. Pleasant and good are synonyms of one another. So what, what, is, what is David saying? Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. What he's saying is this. When we live in the reality of our unity, it is right and delightful. It is right. We are aligned with what God's intentions are. And it's delightful. It's beautiful to see. 
I think it's an appropriate question to ask, well, delightful to whom? God or man? And, and I would say that it's both. And, and the, the illustrations that he gives us in verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3 help us kind of see that more clearly. So let's go to verse 2. Let's go to verse 2 of Psalm 133. I'm going to read that to you. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Let me be honest, I love a good beard verse. Mm, it's good for the soul. Yep, Aaron apparently has an amazing beard, and here we are, got oil on it. It's great. Listen, what in tarnation is happening here? What is this talking about? This is one of those moments where culturally we are disconnected from the meaning of this verse. We don't have something in our culture that, that would help us to know just offhand what this means. So allow me to enlighten us a little bit. I'm going to start by reading a recipe from Exodus. A recipe from Exodus. And so this is an instruction from God to Moses about uh, something he has to make up. So God says to Moses, this is from Exodus 30, if you're curious, take the finest spices, liquid myrrh, sweet-smelling cinnamon, aromatic cane, cassia, and he gives all kinds of weight and measures for that, and and a, a hen of olive oil, just a hen, And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate consecrate them that they may serve as priests. So, step one, what's this recipe about? Uh, Moses is to take all this amazing smelling stuff and, and he's to make up an anointing oil. He's to make an oil And the purpose of that oil is specific. So once he makes this oil with this recipe, it's not to be used for anything else. It says here, it shall be a holy anointing oil, meaning set apart, not to use it for deodorant, not to use it for your hair, nothing else, only the purpose that I set out for it. And so what is that purpose? It's step two. And they're supposed to anoint, uh, I skipped a, a bunch of things, but they're supposed to anoint not just Aaron and his sons, the priest, but also the tabernacle and all the implements in, in the place of worship where God met the people. And so, uh, this sweet, spicy, aromatic oil is drenched all over the tent of God, all over the priests. And, and, and the role of those two items, the tabernacle and the priest, is so important. You see, those are the places where God, the world of God, the realm of God, and the realm of man overlap. Especially in the Old Testament, Where does God come down in the Shekinah glory and dwell amongst men in the tabernacle in the center of the camp of the Israelites? Who are those who who, uh, bring the messages of God and bring the the sins of the people before God and, and are mediators, the priests? And so this amazing aromatic potion is to mark where God and man commune. I hope the significance of of this is coming into view. You see, there is this dynamic, aromatic experience connected with God in the presence of His people. And so there's this very specific smell, this pleasing smell that would, go up, that would be around that experience. And so, as the people approached, it would bring back memories, it would bring back pleasant thoughts, and, and that, that aroma would remind them how pleasant it was to be in the presence of God. And God gives them this gift. Why? Because what is His delight? To be with His people. God delights to be with His people. 
And so unfortunate for me, uh, the beauty in this verse isn't the beard, okay? Slightly disappointed when I realized that. But what is, what is David saying? How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Let me use this example of oil on Aaron's beard. It's not Aaron's beard that's the point. What he's saying is David's in his mind anticipating the most glorious thing he can think of. David in his mind as he's finding image, imagery as a poet, he's going to the thing that, that means the most to us. It should mean the most to us. And that is the overlap of the natural and the supernatural. The very presence of God with man. So to whom is the unity of God's people pleasing to God's people and God. You see, the priest and the tabernacle, what were they? They were the physical signs of, of the gracious presence of God amongst the people. So, think about the Lord's Supper. It is the Lord's Supper the physical, uh, uh, the physical body and blood of Christ? No, we don't teach that. It is a sign, a representation of the spiritual presence of Jesus Christ. The same way, the temple and the, and the priest, they weren't the, the actual, they weren't gods themselves. They were the physical, gracious, physical presentation, presence of God amongst the people. So in turn, in turn, as we move the idea and the meaning of this, this Aaron's beard verse to ourselves, we can learn that this, God's people, when they live out their lives together, you see, I'm, I'm connecting the meaning, that togetherness, that togetherness, is the physical sign of the presence of the triune God amongst the people. You see, we don't have a tabernacle anymore. We don't have priests anymore. We are the priests. We are the tabernacle. And when we are together, we are the physical sign of the gracious presence of God amongst the people of earth. So there's immediate application. The physical presence of Christians in our lives. Christians, in our lives. That is the physical sign of Christ's presence in our lives. God delights to be with His people. God's people delight to be with God. And neither of those things allow us to live this solitary life without other Christians in our lives. The physical sign of God's gracious presence in our life is other Christians. It's a physical sign. It's like the smell that came from the anointing of Aaron's beard. The smell that reminded the Israelites, this man, Aaron, is going to represent us to God and God to us. And, and through his work, the priest and the tabernacle, God dwells with us. So the Aaron's beard thing, what does it mean? It means to be with God's people is delicious and special and it means something real. It means something real. It's not just something we do on Sunday. It, there is real meaning. This is why, as a church, we don't just worship together in fellowship. We provide and promote life groups. Why? Because we believe that as you spend time with other Christians, you are, you are a witness to the physical sign of the gracious presence of Christ in your life. The beard isn't the only illustration that we're given. The second one we find at the beginning of verse 3. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. The dew of Hermon. Coincidentally, 
The dew of Hermon is what I call the condensation that builds up behind my mask that I wear, my face mask. Uh, was that too far? Probably. Listen, this is a very linear meeting. This is very logical. What, what, what David is getting at when he references the dew of Hermon, it's very simple. Let me do, tell you this way. So Israel was an arid country. Israel has more of a, a dry climate. And so at the very top of the strip of Israel, right, here's Israel on the coast, up here at the top is this mountain called Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon. It's a snow-capped mountain, and it, it, uh, from it, uh, there's a small range of mountains that go down the, the eastern side of Israel. But when rain falls, or dew falls, or the snow melts on Mount Hermon, it trickles down the mountain, and what does it do? It first of all gathers at Lake Hule, and then at the Sea of Galilee, and then finally at the Dead Sea. So if you know anything about biblical geography, you're kind of getting an idea of what's happening here. What is the river that, that feeds those three lakes, those three seas? It's the Jordan River. The Jordan River. So what does the dew of Hermon have to do with Israel? The dew of Hermon is what gives Israel the Jordan River. And the Jordan River is what gives Israel life. So the dew of Hermon trickles down. It makes the, the, the Jordan River. The Jordan River gives water to feed the animals and plants of Israel. The animals and plants of Israel give the people literal life. And so the dew of Hermon is the source of life for the people of Israel. And what's great is this is a one-to-one -one correlation. What, what David is saying is dwelling with brothers and sisters in unity is life-giving to God's people. Life-giving. Not only is it pleasant, not only is it the physical sign of the gracious presence of God in our lives, it is life-giving. There's kind of two ways we can look at this as far as application. The first one I would like to point out is that separation from the body takes life away. When we are separate from the body of Christ, separate from the presence of other Christians, we, life is taken away from our souls. Now there's lots of reasons that the people of God can be separated from one another. In fact, we are experiencing that right now here at Grace. We are coming back to worship, but we have been separate from one another for some time. And when you are separate, what happens? It's like a drought for your heart. <laughs> you, you are thirsty. You're thirsty. It's like you're shriveling away. It's not good for your soul. And so, when you are separate from God's people, it's like you're in a drought. There's no life-giving force around you. Now, there's other reasons you can be uh, re removed or separated from one another. Sometimes disagreements can occur, can occur, and you feel as though you've been pushed out of unity. Many times, uh, for many different reasons, people self-select out of a particular church community. Maybe life gets too busy or whatever, but here's, here's the key. In all those situations, here's what I want to say. If you're in one of those scenarios where you maybe are floating, you haven't been connected, uh, listen, this first one's, bear with me on this first one. This is not the case for everyone, but it's something worth thinking about. If you have felt these ways, being pushed out or, or wanting to, to isolate yourself from a church community at more than one church, it's worth taking some time and ask the question, am I the dividing factor? I'm not saying you are, so don't take offense. But if that has been your, uh, your experience many times over, it's at least worth asking, man, am I the one who is causing division? Am I treating others like they are the ones whom Christ has died for? Now, in many cases, that's not the case. 
But if it is your case, you want to make sure you weed that sin out and confess it to God and receive forgiveness and to grow in that. But many, many times, I've witnessed this growing up, I've witnessed this as a pastor, many times because sin is still in the church, because we are sinners, people become the victim of divisiveness. And my, my call to those who are separate, especially those who are victims of divisiveness, is don't keep yourself separate. Find some place to worship. Find some place to be around Christians. It's essential to our spiritual lives to be with your people. <laughs> with our people, the people of God. We need that. Separation from that takes life away from us. The flip side of that coin, and there's a little bit of a correction in here for us, church, um, but the, second, the flip side of that is being with the body restores life. It restores life. Um, as I was studying this passage, I was looking something up, and it happened to be in Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together, and uh, I think it's going to be linked somewhere on our website if you're interested in reading it, but frankly, it is a Christian classic. It's an incredible book about uh, Christians in community and all that it means. And Bonhoeffer is, is relaying an experience that he had at the seminary at Finkenwald. And so he is, uh, it's really a great read. If you have never read Life Together by Bonhoeffer, I highly recommend it. But listen to this quote from that book. It's a little longer, but I'm going to read it nice and clearly so you can hear the emphasis I want to get, make here. So remember, being with the body restores life. So listen to this. Of course, what is an inexpressible blessing from God for the lonely. So what he's talking about at this point in the book is people who are separate understand their need for this togetherness, all right? And they understand that it's grace of God to be together. So what, of course, what is inexpressible, an inexpressible blessing from God for the lonely individual is easily disregarded and trampled underfoot by those who receive the gift every day. Listen to the relevance of what he says next. It is easily forgotten that the community of Christians is a gift of grace from the kingdom of God, a gift that can be taken away from us any day. That the time still separating us from the most profound loneliness may be brief indeed. So here's his response to that idea. Therefore, let those who until now have had the privilege of living a Christian life together with other Christians praise God's grace from the bottom of their hearts. Let them thank God on their knees and realize it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are still permitted to live in the community of Christians today. Relevance alert. We have just experienced that. There was no way in early March we thought in a couple weeks we would be separated from one another. To be together is a grace from God, and it is not promised in this life. Think of our, our Christian brothers and sisters in China who cannot meet or North Korea, or any of these other countries, Myanmar, where Christianity is oppressed, Nigeria. And they are forced to not meet. And yet we have it, and have had it in our lives, very readily. And what his point here is, is we can't forget how important it is. We can't forget how fragile it is. And the correction for us is this. We must remember and understand and realize that there are those even in our church, Grace. There are those in our church who, that do not have the presence of people, the people of God in their lives like you do. Many of us have a, a wealth of, of the sign of God's grace in our lives, of the life-giving presence of God's people in our lives, but there are many that do not. 
There are many that do not. And so I want us all, again, this is another benefit of what we just experienced, I want us all to remember the longing and loneliness that we have felt. Being away from our Christian brothers and sisters. And I want us to lift up our eyes and look around and look for those who are potentially in that space. The people of God need one another. They need one another. So as we summarize what we've just read from these two examples in verse 1, here's what we can learn. When we are living in the reality of our unity, this, remember this reality is uh, created for us by Jesus Christ and we are placed in it only by Jesus Christ. When we're living in that reality of our unity is delightful, exciting, and life-giving. <laughs> That's what it is. When we are together, it is right. It is good. It is life. Which leads us to this final phrase, for the Lord, there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. There the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So here's what it's talking about. The mountains of Zion. What is Zion? Zion for the Israelites is the focal point of worship. And the idea that's being expressed here is that wherever God chooses to dwell, Wherever God chooses to dwell, there is the source of life forevermore. True life forever. Wherever God chooses to dwell, there is the source of true life forever. So where does God dwell? (laughs) Where does God dwell? First of all, God dwells in heaven. So listen to this from Revelation. At the end of time, God will unite our world in His. So it's not a tabernacle anymore. It's not the church anymore. God's going to unite them. It's going to be one place. And, and listen to this from Revelation 21 and 22. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither there shall be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So, God at the end of time will combine our dwelling place and His. And what is the result? Look at the beginning of chapter 22 of Revelation. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Where God chooses to dwell, there is the source of life forever. So that that is the eternal, not yet place. That is what happens when we get to heaven. That's what happens when we are with God for eternity. True life forevermore with Him. But there's also the not yet. Or excuse me, there's also the right now. That was the not yet. So where does God exist right now? God exists right now amongst His people, the church. We are the dwelling place of God. Here and now. Listen to this from Ephesians 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's the Scripture. Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Listen to this last phrase. This is a summary. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This should blow our minds, church. If we follow the logic here, wherever God dwells, there is the source of true life forever. We know He dwells in heaven. Where else does He dwell? Right here in our church. In us. Not the building. 
in us as people, in our unity, as we dwell in unity, God is with us. And so where is true and eternal life found? This should blow our minds. In the pleasant and right presence of God's people together. Praise the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, thank You for this may sound different to some folks, for keeping us apart for some time. I believe, Lord, that you are showing us things you needed us to see. And so, God, I pray that as we come back together, we would not forget those lessons, we would not uh, shun those lessons, but we would grab hold of those lessons and that we would implement them into our lives moving forward. As we do gain uh, our presence of one another back together, I pray, God, uh, fervently that you would keep us healthy, Keep the virus at bay. Heal our community. Keep our church as a safe place where the virus does not spread. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to take these lessons to heart, that we would treat one another, even in our disagreement, as if we are those whom you have died. We'd remember that we are in this place, in this community, only by your grace, and it is your grace that we are together. May we appreciate it. And Lord, may, may as we... Um, as we dwell together in life groups and in worship and in fellowship, may we feel the life-giving power of God's people in Your presence. I pray, Lord, that we would look out for those who do not have God's people in their lives and that we would invest in those people, open up our lives to them. I pray for all those who are lonely in our community, all those who do not have a place to belong, those who do not have Jesus Christ Call their name, Lord, and help grace to be a place where they can be broken as we all are and yet faithful to Jesus Christ. I pray all these things in your precious Son's name. Amen.